continuing our talk today. Today's topic is on Sabbath, which apparently everybody has taken very literally because um, they're not here. So that's okay. I'm recording it for our little podcast. Everybody can catch up. Does everybody have a handout? Cool. Um, I'm a little bummed that actually everybody's not here because the idea of Sabbath is one that in our minds I think feels very benign um, and is probably one of the most radical notions within, within the Bible. Um, the Hebrew Bible, definitely, but if you understand the New Testament in light of the Hebrew Bible, then um, Sabbath is, is one of the most radical notions within the New Testament as well. Um, Sabbath, Sabbath is amazing because it was always meant to be a radical thing, always. And when you simply understand the stories, uh, the, the foundation of Sabbath and where it comes from, it's as clear as daylight that it's radical. And we have not only sanitized it over time, it's really just not a part of Christianity at all. Um, and so I, I really want to key in on the context today of Sabbath. And uh, hopefully this is something that, um, make sure that's recording, I've messed up the last two weeks. Hopefully this is something that you can think of both as a church community and kind of individually in your lives. Because there's always going to be an implication on what Sabbath means for you at this stage in your life. Whether that's a stage of retirement, a stage of working full-time, a stage of being a student, a stage of being a parent. There's so many uh, different places we find ourselves in lives, but Sabbath speaks to every single one of us in some way. And I don't think we ever offer ourselves the time to really consider that and make choices about it. So, that being said, I want to start with the wonderful Protestant work ethic. How many of you have heard that phrase before, right? That, that goes toe-to-toe with the American dream. Uh, the American dream and the Protestant work ethic is what made this country what it is today. Um, Protestant work ethic is not just a phrase. It, it is an actual thing that can be charted. Uh, and it is something that is very much part of the identity of this country um, as it was founded by Europeans from, uh, primarily from, England, um, but then other parts of Europe as well. And Protestant work ethic finds its uh, founding in double predestination, which I remember doing a kind of a survey maybe a year and a half or two years ago asking what topics you guys wanted me to cover, and someone asked if I would cover predestination. And I'm happy to say that I don't know a lot about predestination because I'm not Calvinist, I'm a Lutheran. And Luther's the reformer that I um, grew up with, not, not John Calvin. And John Calvin is the one who we get predestination from. Um, but the idea of predestination also has a, a, an actual lived out effect in our country, that we would not be the way we are if it wasn't for this uh, theological idea. And so there's predestination and then there's double predestination. And I feel like I'm talking about IPAs, you know, there's this is an IPA and a double IPA. Yeah. <laughs> um, predestination, is the idea that came first, and then double predestination kind of took over as people kept wondering. And so it's not like you choose between predestination and double predestination. It's just it's just double predestination. And all that means, so predestination was the idea that people believed um, that there are just people that God created that are predestined to go to heaven. It has, it has nothing to do with what choices people make. They're just predestined to go to heaven. And, you know, as that, that theology came about, folks started asking the question, well, what about everybody else? And 
so then you get double predestination, which is, well, then the other half is predestined to go to hell. Um, and so you have that idea. There's nothing we can do. God created life so that a portion of that life is destined, no matter what, to go to heaven. And the other portion, no matter what, is destined to go to hell. Now, I'll quickly say where that comes from. Luther, right, was the one who started this idea of saved by grace, meaning that people are saved by God's grace outside of anything else that they can do. And the question really started rolling around, well, what about works? What about all this stuff? Um, what about people who are bad? What about people who don't believe in God? And there was really no way to kind of justify those questions. And so John Calvin came up with predestination, just to say, look, God just created life and it's destined to go to one place or another. So we don't have to worry about those questions anymore. And uh, within the um, English, French, this 
guess to say like indigenous people are and non-Christians are included in this because they're clearly the people that are going to hell. I mean, you just look at them, right? They're clearly going to hell. Um, and and it, it also becomes a way to really delineate different groups of people, but it creates within uh, American, especially white American men, this desire to work hard. And that Protestant work ethic starts there and then spreads. And so then you can draw a line from Protestant work ethic into kind of our version of capitalism today, um, but also the prosperity gospel. You don't have prosperity gospel if you don't have John Calvin and the Protestant work ethic. Just a straight line from one to the other. Now, why do I, why do I bring all this up, right? It does create this enduring value of work, but it's over almost everything else. And then you get this kind of juxtaposition Folks who, like, you think of people today who mandate, like, really want, I want to see a display of the Ten Commandments in public spaces. This country doesn't have enough God in it anymore. We need more God in the public spaces. We need to have the Ten Commandments up here and here and here and here and here. So you have all these displays. And yet those people who probably mandate that are also people who believe so ardently in this work ethic that the idea of Sabbath is completely non-existent in their minds. A juxtaposition of people mandating uh, space, public spaces be filled with the Ten Commandments while at the same time negating probably the most important tenet, or one of the most important tenets of those Ten Commandments. Um, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here, you just, I'll just put that there for you, Steve. You keep it. It's <laughs> interesting that people, people will choose the Ten Commandments over the Beatitudes, oh, yeah. for example. Um, <laughs> can you unpack that a little bit? The Beatitudes don't have much to do with the current value system of America at the time. Oh. Right? Um, it's just not, it, it, it doesn't have really to do with rules or authority. It, it has to do with kind of a favored portion of society, and that portion of society tends to be a portion that we don't value. Why, why put that in public displays when you can put uh, ordained rules by God, right? Um, so, so Sabbath. So Sabbath is just not that important a thing within, within our country, despite our country being, what, 75% Christian. Um, and, and really, from the point of Europeans coming over here to today, Sabbath has never been a part of our, our country's identity. Um, so I'm going to pause. I'm going to just stop that part right there, now I want to give you kind of an understanding of just Sabbath in the Bible. And, and it's easy to make, to connect the dots and understand why. So Sabbath in the Bible, but before I get into that, I want you to understand kind of how the Hebrew Bible is separated. I'm not going to go into the full separation of the Hebrew Bible, but if you think about it this way, there's this kind of intro part to the Hebrew Bible. And when I say Hebrew Bible, I mean Old Testament. So the intro part is everything before Moses. Okay? Because Moses is where an established identity of Israel really starts. And, and the reason it starts with Moses is because that's where all of the commandments, that's where Torah comes from. Torah does not exist before Moses. Um, and, and Torah and that kind of, um, that, that covenant with Moses of going into the promised land becomes the most central identity for Jewish people. But we still have all these wonderful stories prior to Moses, right? We have the story of Adam and Eve, we have uh, Noah's Ark and the Flood, um, we 
have a genealogy that goes from Noah to Abraham and Sarah, and then their son Isaac, who then has Jacob, who then has his 12 sons, the second youngest being Joseph. Joseph goes into Egypt because his brothers sell him into slavery and ends up rising up in the ranks of Egypt and in a time of great famine not only saves Egypt but saves all these other Semitic groups around Egypt. And uh, the, the story of Joseph in Egypt gives rise to all of the Israelites or the Hebrews as they were called then flourishing within Egypt and becoming this wonderful slave population that just happens to be here and we have to take advantage of it. And so uh, you've got all of the Hebrews living under slavery, and then their redeemer, Moses, is born, and, and through God's help, liberates them, marches into Canaan, establishes the promised land, which becomes known as Israel. So you have everything before Moses, and then you have everything after Moses. Um, <clears throat> after Moses, uh, after the Exodus, and Moses, I mean, literally before Moses and the Israelites, are condemned to wander the wilderness for 40 years, before that even happens, Moses is marching with the, the newly freed Hebrews in the wilderness, and um, they all start complaining because they don't have enough food, there's not enough water, they even tell Moses, hey, um, you know, can, can we just go back to Egypt and be slaves again, because at least we got to eat every day, and so then God gets pissed off and you know, just says, alright, fine, you little babies, I'm going to provide you that that kind of distinctness of who the Jewish people are doesn't 
we saying that when um, Joseph, you know, rises in Egypt and the famine comes, and is that when um, his family, his clan, and other tribes that speak Hebrew sort of, as famine refugees move into Egypt and become a, a slave population? That's the story. So again, there's no data that proves that Joseph was a real person. There's no data that proves that Hebrews went into Egypt and grew to that level of a population and became slaves. Um, for the most part, these are, these, these are the stories of the people's identity. But to answer your question, yes. Did they share a common language, you think? They would have been, there would have been the Egypt language and then there would have been Semitic languages. And, and Egypt being the superpower of the world um, would have maintained that status through uh, uh, trade and, and whatnot, commerce, etc. And so it would have been very common for Egypt to have people who spoke Semitic languages living within those bounds. It would have been common for Egypt to uh, interact with people who spoke Semitic It just sounds like, come on in, but now you're slaves. Yeah, kind of. I mean, and, and the way this, the way it's written in the Bible, Joseph brings everybody in, right? Joseph, as a Hebrew, is powerful, but Joseph brings all of his people in to save them from starving to death, and, and then it's 400 years of flourishing. So it's not just a, it's not a generation, it's 400 years of growth, and then realizing, hey, we've got all these people does that sound familiar? <laughs> I like the piece where God is telling the Israelites, I need you to rest. You were slaves, and I want to retrain you to yeah. rest in yeah. I like that piece. There's a whole value to that. I mean, and again, as I said, Sabbath is radical. And when you, when you just put the story in its context, you don't even have to do a lot of digging. When you put the story in its context, it's like, yeah, clearly, Sabbath is radical. And, and, and part, of, part of that for God is you've just come out of Egypt, a slave system, an economic slave system that has forced you to work every single day without really much. Um, I need to retrain your value system because it would be easy enough for the, the Hebrews to turn around and just do the same thing as some other, other group of people. Um, and so it's really, we're going to retrain your value system. And, there's, and I'll get into that Sabbath values for today. It's, it's pretty... Sabbath, Sabbath starts with the Jewish people in Exodus 16 before Moses receives the laws, it, but it also goes back into the creation story where God created. So it's, a, it's got a divine element too. This is not just something for people. This is something that God did also. He created for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. So, so that's just the story of Sabbath I'm going to focus on for our conversation today. I want to get into these values, and I'll touch on a couple other Hebrew Bible things, but I really want us to think about these values for us today. So Sabbath does present an economic value to all of us, right? And that economic value is primarily the idea of abundance versus the idea of accumulation. And I would argue that the American value, the, the value that Americans uh, really dream of and support the most is the value of accumulation, not the value, the value of abundance. And so what is abundance? Abundance is everyone has enough but not more than enough. And that's established by Sabbath 
As, God, as I said in Exodus 16, God does this. I'm going to provide this for you, but I'm not going to provide enough for you to accumulate. So what happens? Because we actually have the story of people trying to accumulate more than enough. And they wake up the next morning, and it's rotted. God's very intentional about that. You can have enough, and I will provide it for you. But you cannot have more than enough. There's also the gleaning requirements. It's kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but... Um, Sabbath was also an egalitarian uh, uh, value in antiquity. Not entirely egalitarian, because there was still hierarchy, but still, everyone, everyone had to observe the Sabbath. That meant the men, of course. It also meant their wives. It meant their children, who had very low status. It meant their slaves, who had no status. It meant their animals, who had no status. It meant any resident aliens, any foreigners, anyone who was not a part of their tribe, but living on the periphery. And, and God was so serious about that that God even told people who did own and farm their own land, you go through once and anything left over is for everybody else so that they can collect for the Sabbath as well because everybody has to observe the Sabbath. It was a forced day of rest, and every living creature within the confines of Israel had to observe it. So abundance, everyone has enough. You cannot collect more than enough because others need that for their own Sabbath. Now what's accumulation? Accumulation is a few have more than enough beyond a needed time at the expense of others not having. Can you imagine a world where there was an abundance of resources to survive on and someone decided to accumulate those resources but it had no effect on the amount of resources that were available to everybody else? People would look at that person and say, what the hell are you doing? That'd be like going to a beach day, big open beach with sand, right? Everyone's there playing and having fun and some kid's like, no, this sand's all mine just spends the day trying to collect the sand for themselves, and after a whole day's work of trying to collect sand, looking around, and everyone is still playing in their own sand, right? The accumulation doesn't even become a conceived idea if there is an abundance. So accumulation can only happen if you're taking a, a resources away from other people to the point that they no longer have enough. It's the only reason people would accumulate is because they know that there's not enough out there and I need to try to get enough for me and my own. But knowing that this in some way is going to take away from someone else who desperately needs it. So it's abundance versus accumulation. And that was the Egypt slave system. Um, Egypt had plenty. And Egypt, uh, being the superpower of the time, had uh, we have hieroglyphics of the amount of slavery that happened within Egypt and the amount of building that happened within Egypt. Um, it was an accumulation system. And so when the Israelites are liberated from Egypt, uh, it is very intentional. You are not bringing that value system with you. So abundance versus accumulation. Sabbath is liberative and egalitarian. It's centered in liberation from Egypt, and all were mandated to take Sabbath. So then the question there for us is, what does the American system Value of 
accumulation. I think America had a slave system because of the value of accumulation. Yeah. And I think America still has certain systems in place because of the value of accumulation. I read today that, um, oh God, what's the Alcorn Cigna? Cigna board just spent $11 billion stock buybacks. Wow. It could have used that money to lower the rates for its people. Yeah. Spent $11 billion buying back its own stock. That's accumulation. Yep. So economics is probably the most forthright value. This is the one that affects us in a systemic way. It's the one we could probably look at and start to despair at. <laughs> um, the one thing I would say as a pastor is if, if anyone's ever gonna say America's a Christian nation, just right there. Are we? Because let's talk about Sabbath. Growing up in the 50s, the local stores were all closed on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Everything closed on Sunday. 
Um, the post office didn't show up. There were no, there were very few of any cafes, the stores, everything just was closed on yeah. Sunday, yeah. period. And, and it wasn't the, blue law. It since was the start of the pandemic, the post office now delivers on Sundays. How about that? Yeah. yeah. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, they don't do regular mail, but they drop off all your packages on Sundays now. Um, I, the way I want us to think about this is I want to imagine, I want you to honestly imagine an intentional time of rest today. And that time is, and I, in, this, in this scenario, I want you to imagine that you're already feeling rested, okay? You cannot use this day to just sit on your ass and like catch up on rest. So you're already feeling rested. What if you had a 24-hour period to just let go of all distractions and spend that day pursuing joy? Now I think about that question, it's kind of, it, it, it actually doesn't make me feel good, it makes me feel anxious. <laughs> because I have no idea what that joy looks like for me. Not at all. I, if you told me, go do the thing that brings you most joy, got 24 hours, you're feeling rested, what would it be? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I'm totally fine trying to explore that, but the fact that I don't even know it, I think it speaks volumes of the system we, um, we've been enveloped in for a long time. I've, I, I saw a therapist, I just stopped seeing six months ago. I saw her for about five years and I had a really good um, kind of a, a, a breakthrough with her. You know, part of it was I was talking about being a parent, being the pastor, wanting to make sure I was a present husband, wanting to make sure I was present with my kids more than my father was with me, um, and also just being fried, perpetually fried. And she, she ended up asking, you know, growing up, high school, college, etc. when you had free time, what did you do? I told her, oh, I spent time with my friends. And she's like, yeah, what did you guys do? And I was like, um, smoked a lot of weed. At night, we would drink. She's like, so instead of being able to just be present, you had to have something to help you navigate that space. And I said, yeah. And she's like, can you think of a time with your friends from high school through college, even up to today, where you just had open time and it wasn't mediated through alcohol or drugs? And I said, no, I can't. I have that space and I had to fill it up with something that would make me less attuned to it so that I wouldn't be so anxious in the midst of it. And so she said, well now, you don't smoke weed, you don't drink all the time. Um, what do you fill that time up with? said responsibility. I work. I, I try to be present with my wife. I try to do everything that I can at the house to make sure the girls are ready, etc. And, and there's not a lot of time left over after that. So I, and then if there is, my wife and I watch TV or I play video games. But she's like, so same thing. You're, you're taking that space and you're putting some kind of a mediator there to help you navigate that space with So, kind of saying, 
conceptual ideas that kind of are so fleeting that sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit of pressure to this idea of being in this joyful childlike state. Um, is that something real or is it just these fleeting places of bliss and joy that we experience, you know, when you see your daughter or your family? Um, maybe that's, that's it.
hummingbird, like fill up the hummingbird feeders. We have several outside. And just once once I have those all filled and hung up, the coffee would be ready and I'd go get a cup of coffee and sit outside. And I could watch hummingbirds just come and you know, all day long until lunchtime, just not even get up again, just sitting and watching that. And they, you know, the kids would be like, what are we doing? <coughs> Where, you know, what are, so it was, um, I don't, and, and I don't know how to change that for them. I don't know what I can do to reverse that, that need for constant, constantly being plugged in.
we had wonderful food and there was joy and I got to meet new friends and I was playing basketball, we were having fun, it was just, and my neighbor, the father said to me, you better enjoy it now because when you, when you get older, it's gonna be a lot different. And it did not register at the time. But as I grew up, I started to realize as responsibilities came, the real joy of being young and free and not having to have all the worries of life were now starting to pile up. And that the joy was not like a child. You just wake up and you go, you have nothing to worry, you don't worry about finances, you don't worry about this, you don't worry about that. You just go out and have fun and play and have this joy. You know, you see the kids going around catching butterflies or looking under rocks, looking in a stream or something like that. And so I think it's just part of maybe getting back to one's childhood. There, there's a commercial on TV, I don't know if you've seen it, where a bunch of older ladies are sitting at the top of the hill and they're sledding down the hill, you know, these young kids and they're kind of like that. So she goes and orders on Amazon some some uh, little pads to slide down the hill. Breaking and she's, she's up at the top of the hill and they're all watching, you know, kind of like watching young kids and she kind of passes them out to the older people and says, okay, let's do it. They're sliding down this hill in the snow and, and the younger kids are looking at the older people doing that and they're having fun and then all of a sudden it switches from the old to what they look like when they were young and they're continuing to go down the hill and there's joy of being young and free and and for just that moment in time that's where they they are in their mind and if we can get maybe back to that why can't we well I, I, I think you have to also be taught yeah. you have to be modeled it because I grew up where I well I grew up with spending a lot of time in Colorado off the grid and then once I grew up I ended up living off the grid by choice. And I was modeled that as a, as a child all the way through my adulthood because there's nothing better than sitting on the porch and having to peel potatoes and listen to you know, everybody having a conversation. So I think you have to be modeled it and be taught it and ta be taught the joy of it. And it's not something you can turn on and turn off and just go, oh, well, this is what you do as a kid but this is what you do as an adult. You know, well, and it's okay to just it's, hang it's out. It's like Chris and you were saying, filling your space with something to fill that space. Peeling potatoes and talking is, is not filling the space, it's just absorbing it's, the yeah. joy of what, you know, of just preparing being a meal, calming, listening to conversations yeah. is calming, off the grid is calming. And, and I think you're right, you gotta try to get back to that and I think what you did there was to expose them to something that they can be taught to value. It might not have worked at the, at the minute this was all happening, <laughs> but it's a teaching lesson, like you're saying. Maybe like a weekend instead of seven days next time. Yes. Yes. It, it's, Baby steps. <laughs> you're, you're teaching them that what you're saying is to model something very important. But you're right.
was two points. I was raised with the Sabbath. My parents were just like, I think it was a day for my dad. He worked three jobs and was on college. And it's a day for him just to reconnect with his family because we didn't see him all week. And so we didn't get to have friends over. We were just like, we're home and we're a unit. And so that was for about 10 years of my childhood. And I didn't really realize it was a Sabbath at the time, but it truly was. And then um, thanks to COVID, the blessing of COVID, um, I adopted the discipline of Sabbath. And it was hard. Like you guys are saying, it was hard to be like, I'm going to use my Bible, my paper Bible. I'm not going to have my phone open and just spend that time intentionally. It looks different. Sometimes it's having a friend over for dinner and catching up. Other times it's just being out in nature and taking a hike and or just taking a good book and just sitting out there and not even reading the book sometimes, just being out there. So it's it's been a challenge, and that's what this day represents for me here, is just like, yeah, there's a whole town of Salting I haven't seen, but I want to go and do what is important and is restful to my soul on vacation. And so being part of it. I went to the Catholic Church first, and I'm here with you guys. Just to and I'll go to the falls and enjoy some nature. Yeah. Just, just the beauty of pulling away from the work holiday yeah. that I was raised by Lutheran grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> Always strive for the best. <laughs> yeah, I guess that my experience is that um, engagement and mindfulness are our choice and practice. Joy is not. I mean, if you're mindful and engaged, maybe you will experience joy in a hummingbird or in a person or in a sunrise, but it's not a given. And I think that often we beat ourselves up because, well, we're, we're mindful and we're engaged and we're not happy. Well, okay, maybe there's something coming up that needs to be worked on. Maybe that that's coming up, if I'm uncomfortable, maybe I need to work on that. But it didn't come up until I was willing to engage with what's, what's here and be mindful and present. So I don't think happiness and joy are, are something we choose and pursue. I think it's something different. We engage and we care and we're present and mindful. And then grace and joy appear. I agree. And, and kind of tie that, I think, with what Denise said about yeah. there's, there's so much pressure of, oh, I'm going to take a Sabbath. I'm going to go out and pursue joy and do these things that I choose to do. And then when you do them, you don't have that joyful experience. You're like, oh, shit. You know? And so there's that pressure. Like, this better have some kind of an outcome that makes me feel joyful. And if it doesn't, then it's all for naught. And, and I think it's far more about intentionality. And it's like exercise. Exercise sucks about the first few weeks once you start doing it. It's terrible. And then eventually you get into some kind of a rhythm that actually starts generating serotonin and dopamine. Um, and, and then kind of what Chris was saying too, I think we have been we have been ingrained in this value of work for so long that I don't want it to go without saying that if we ever decided to take any kind of a Sabbath moment, you almost have to plan on the first part of it being agitated. It's you're not gonna just step right into it and go probably going to be a tremendous amount of discomfort and agitation that you have to get through first because our brains have just been so wired the other direction for so long. And I think that's far more the case with our kids than anything else. Um, I think my coincidence is that having a glass of wine or wine in this situation. Yeah. To get 
I'm not supposed to drink any alcohol. And Uh-oh. it's been like, <laughs> okay, huh? Yeah, because you're, you're just um, living in San Ynez Valley. You, you, like, you go to the grocery store and somebody tries to give you a glass of wine. It's just like, it's, it's our culture. It, yeah, yeah.
population of people who, like me, are truly retired. Yeah. And anyone who truly retires, like me, goes through this space of, well, what do I do? How do I use my time? And so I think there's a resource there that I would be interested perhaps in having some people speak to that. I like that, Steve. Right. I really like that. That's an intergenerational thing, too, which yes. any community craves. What part of that? Oh, I'm saying that we have a population in this church of folks who, like me, are really retired. Right. And so when you re really retire, you have to go through this space of, uh, well, now what do I do? Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not useful, I'm not being paid for something, I've got all this time. Um, and so this journey that we're talking about in terms of Sabbath, in some ways it's exactly the journey that folks like me go on. And there's a lot of people who might have interesting things to say about that in the church about their journey along with oh. Well, you showed up at the city council and you advocated for people, um, for homes. Yes. So, I mean, that was incredibly yes. valuable. Oh, yes. So, yes. thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I, wanted to yeah, that I thought out. I made a really, well, I didn't have a very coherent comment, but it was No, it was good. totally coherent. I love good. it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll help you with the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.